0: Good morning, I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, December 18th. In today's news, states report confusion as the federal government reduces their vaccine shipments. Investigators discover evidence of previously unknown Russian tactics used to penetrate U.S. networks. And White House aides talk President Trump out of a last-minute demand for $2,000 stimulus checks. But first, the big idea. President-elect Joe Biden has chosen Deb Holland, a Democratic congresswoman from New Mexico and a member of the Pueblo of Laguna tribe, to serve as the first-ever Native American cabinet secretary and head the Interior Department. This is a historic pick that really marks a turning point for the U.S. government's fraught relationship with the nation's indigenous peoples. Since its formation 171 years ago, the Interior Department has more often than not egregiously mistreated the 574 federally recognized tribes. This appointment is profoundly meaningful for the 1.9 million Native Americans whose education, health care, and so much more are still shaped indelibly by the department's decision-making. Three divisions of Interior have a massive impact on Indian country, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Education, and the Bureau of Trust Funds Administration, which manages billions of dollars that belong to the tribes. The 60-year-old Holland was born in Arizona to a Native American mother who served in the Navy and a Norwegian-American father who was an active-duty Marine. Holland bounced between 13 public schools as her family changed bases. At 15, She worked at a bakery. Later, she attended law school with the help of student loans and food stamps. She occasionally experienced homelessness as a single mother. As a child, she spent summers with her grandparents in a house without running water in Mesita, one of the Pueblo's small villages in New Mexico. Now, after serving a single term in Congress, she will oversee a department that manages one-fifth of all U.S. land. While she hails from a top oil and gas producing state, she has pledged to transform the department from a champion of fossil fuels development into a promoter of renewable energy and policies to mitigate climate change. Biden has pledged to halt all new oil and gas drilling on public lands and waters, a daunting task that faces legal and political obstacles. The extraction of oil, gas and coal in these areas accounts for a quarter of our nation's annual carbon output. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but it's worth remembering that the legacy of interior is blemished by so many painfully dark chapters. Federal officials removed Native Americans from their ancestral lands, including from Yellowstone, when it was designated as the first national park. In 1972, several hundred tribal activists occupied the Interior Department headquarters in Washington, where Hayland will now work, to draw attention to their plight. In 1983, Ronald Reagan's Interior Secretary, James Watt, blamed all the problems on reservations on indigenous culture itself, which he said was socialist. Sadly, the mistreatment of the Indians isn't ancient history. Biden's choice comes as the federal government's relationship with the tribes has eroded dramatically under President Trump. This administration has removed protections from sacred tribal sites in Utah's Bears Ears National Monument. Trump has allowed oil drillers into Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, home to the caribou that native Alaskans hunt for food. Helen said in an interview with my colleague Juliet Eilprin, who broke this news, that Trump has not been kind to Indian country. She said Trump's two interior secretaries, Ryan Zinke and David Bernhardt, reorganized the Bureau of Indian Affairs and other agencies in ways that, she says, were intentionally designed to hamper the ability of Natives to confer with federal officials. Chase Iron Eyes, a Native activist and an attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project, said that their forefathers never could have dreamed of an actual Indian being appointed at the Cabinet level to run an agency that, as he put it, was created to oversee their absorption. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, officials in at least six states tell us that they were alerted that their second shipments of the Pfizer vaccine have been drastically cut for next week, sparking widespread confusion and conflicting statements from Pfizer and federal officials about who is at fault. The reduction has prompted alarm in health departments across America about whether Operation Warp Speed, Trump's vaccine accelerator program, will be able to distribute doses quickly enough to meet the target of delivering first shots to 20 million people by the end of the month. The news has forced last-minute changes to vaccine distribution plans for next week. Several states were intending to use the second shipment to begin vaccinating residents of long-term care facilities. But now, governors face a dilemma about whether to go ahead with that or to finish inoculating health care providers first. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker said the anticipated shipments to the state in the next two weeks have been cut in half by the Trump administration. The uncertainty was even more pronounced in Florida, where the Republican Governor Ron DeSantis said new shipments from Pfizer are on hold, as officials in his administration reported that their expected allocation disappeared entirely, like zero shots, in Tiberias, which is the online tracking system that the federal government uses to coordinate vaccine distribution with the states. Maine announced that the Trump team told them that they're going to get 40% fewer doses than they were previously told. Pfizer executives say they are baffled that the Trump administration is not immediately distributing all of the vaccines that are in its possession, instead leaving much of it on the shelves. And Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who's overseeing a lot of this, announced last night that his wife is sick with COVID. In better news, Lori McGinley and Carolyn Johnson report that the FDA intends to authorize the Moderna vaccine later today, after the agency's vaccine advisory panel voted almost unanimously last night, 20 in favor, one abstaining, that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh its risks. And the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has just released a new set of guidelines that say employers can legally require their workers to get the vaccine before letting them return to the office. There are two key exceptions, a disability or a sincere religious belief that bars vaccinations. In those cases, employers will be required under the law to provide reasonable accommodation if possible. Number two, Federal investigators revealed evidence yesterday of previously unknown tactics used for penetrating government computer networks. It's a chilling development that underscores the disastrous reach of Russia's recent intrusions and the logistical nightmare facing federal officials who are trying to purge these intruders from key systems. For days, it's been clear that compromised software patches distributed by the Texas-based company SolarWinds were central to the Russian efforts to gain access to U.S. networks. But a new alert that went out yesterday from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security says evidence suggests that the Russians were using other malware as well. The alert cited a blog post this week from Vilexity, a Reston, Virginia-based cybersecurity company, about repeated intrusions into an unnamed think tank that took place over several years without being detected. These attackers gained access to the think tank's network using multiple tools, backdoors and malware implants. And they exploited, this is scary, a vulnerability in Microsoft's Exchange Control Panel software, which is central to the company's email services. Frankly, most companies' email services. Craig Timberg and Ellen Nakashima report that the Russians also breached into the private systems of the Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration, which manages our country's nuclear weapons stockpile. That's in addition to the departments of state, treasury, commerce, and homeland security. Purging these intruders could take months because the Kremlin's hackers moved rapidly from the initial intrusions through the corrupted software patches to collect and deploy authentic system credentials, making discovery and remediation far more difficult. Meanwhile, this president has said absolutely nothing about the major hacking affecting numerous agencies by an enemy of the United States. Biden yesterday criticized implicitly the Trump administration for allowing this hacking to occur. And Mitt Romney says it's really, really quite extraordinary to have the White House not only staying silent about this, but not taking strong punitive action against the enemy. Number three, White House aides intervened yesterday afternoon to prevent Trump from blowing up stimulus negotiations by issuing a statement demanding substantially larger stimulus payments for millions of Americans. On an afternoon phone call, Trump told allies that the stimulus checks in the relief package should be at least $1,200 per person and possibly as big as $2,000 a person. Congressional leadership is preparing a final deal that would provide checks of $600 a person. Jeff Stein reports that Trump was in the middle of formally drafting his demand for the larger payments when White House officials, who were freaking out, told him that doing so would blow up the delicate negotiations. Congressional Republicans have insisted for months that the relief bill must cost less than $1 trillion if they're going to vote for it, and it's currently designed to cost about $900 billion. Larger stimulus checks would push it well over a trillion. The White House's divisions underscore internal Republican tensions over the relief package, And this almost certainly will be the president's last major piece of legislation in office. White House officials and congressional leaders are trying to address a handful of lingering policy disagreements as they finalize the deal. There are growing signs the talks are going to drag into the weekend, but negotiators on both sides tell us they're confident that they're going to make this happen. Among the most vexing issues, though, still outstanding, is whether to curb the powers of the Federal Reserve, as well as how to structure a new round of the checks. They're also clashing over aid for theaters and music venues, as well as some minor relief for cities and states. Lawmakers have been fighting over these exact same issues since May, but they're trying to resolve all of them all at once, creating a chaotic scene with numerous lawmakers all unsure about the latest state of play. Finally, to finish out this week, let me tell you briefly about four of our fellow Americans who we have lost to covid Benny Napoleon, the sheriff of Wayne County in Michigan, which includes Detroit, died last night following a month-long hospitalization with COVID. He was 65. Cody Leister, a student at Colorado Mesa University, has received an honorary degree posthumously after dying from COVID at only 21 years old. He was the first in his family to go to college. Houston Dr. Carlos arajo Preza, worked the overnight shift, caring for COVID patients until he got infected. In November, the critical care pulmonologist was placed into his own ICU. The immigrant from El Salvador was fit, and he was only 51. So he thought he'd be fine. Now he's gone. And Trinidad McGee worked in a retirement community in San Diego until he died back in April, just days after testing positive he would just have celebrated his 49th birthday. He's survived by his wife, five children, four grandchildren, and his mother, who told the San Diego Union-Tribune that she feels blessed to have a clip of his voice on her phone from a message he left shortly before he died. She says when she has one of the hard days, she listens to his voice, and it gives her strength. To make it through the day. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, December 18th. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Homan. I'll be off the next two weeks for the holidays, but my colleagues will be filling in for me. If you celebrate, have a very merry Christmas. Otherwise, happy holidays. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again on January 4th.